Well, it was about nearly 100 years ago, 1925, when a certain Alaskan sled dog captured the hearts of the world. Uh, and if you are a sourdough, uh, you immediately know which dog I'm talking about. And uh, if you're new to Alaska, maybe you don't know, so let me introduce you to him. His name is Balto. There he is uh, with a picture of his musher, Gunnar Kaysen. If, I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, who also became famous. And this pair uh, became famous because of a very important dog sled run that took place in 1925 that they did together to get a life-saving serum to the people of Nome while they were threatened by a diphtheria epidemic. And if you're not familiar with the story of Balto, I'm actually going to give you the Wikipedia version of it. So if you don't agree with some of the details, as I know some sourdoughs may not, you can change Wikipedia. So there you go. But this is how it goes. In January 1925, doctors realized that a potentially deadly diphtheria epidemic was poised to sweep through the young people of Nome, Alaska. The only serum that could stop the outbreak was in Anchorage, Alaska. The engine of the only aircraft that could quickly deliver the medicine was frozen and would not start. We can relate to that one. After considering all the alternatives, officials decided to move the treatment via multiple dog sled teams. The serum was transported by train from Anchorage to Nanana, where the first musher embarked as part of a relay aimed at delivering the serum to Nome. More than 20 mushers took part. That was news to me. Facing a blizzard with negative 23 degree temperatures, doesn't sound too bad, and strong winds, news coverage of the event was worldwide. On February 2nd, 1925, the Norwegian Gunnar Kaysen drove a team of dogs that was led by Fox, a different dog's name, and that included Balto and other dogs. They arrived in port safety where the final leg of the relay was to begin. The last team and its driver, Ed Roan, had believed Kaysen and the relay were halted in nearby Solomon due to inclement weather, and so were asleep when Kaysen and Balto made it to this final relay point. Kaysen decided to continue on in order to save time it would take to change sleds and hitch up a new team. He traveled the remaining 25 miles to Nome and arrived at Front Street at 5.30 a.m. All ampules of the antitoxin were intact, and Kaysen handed them over to be thawed for use by midday. That's the Wikipedia version of the story of this famous Alaskan event. Now, uh, in the kids' version, which is the one that I first heard when uh, my wife Holly and I were reading it to our kids, uh, Balto was actually the lead dog that saved the day, and he, he had these uh, uncanny dog-like powers of sniffing the snow and knowing just the right path to take. It's all, it was all about Balto in the kids' version. But apparently there's some discrepancy uh, over whether it was Balto or this other dog, Fox, or the two of them together, um, who led that last leg of the sled, rate, sled run. I don't know for real, and if you are a sourdough and want to inform me of the correct view, I will gladly listen to your thoughts later. But regardless of whichever dog it was that led that last leg of the relay, this dog, Balto, became the symbol for the entire relay team and all of their efforts. When lives were on the line, those 20 mushers and lots and lots of dogs, I don't even know how many, including Balto, did what it took to get those, those kids the serum despite the cold, 
uh, despite the weather conditions and despite all the other difficulties that they had to face. And so to the newspapers and the world at large, this Balto became the symbol of selflessness, sacrifice, faithfulness to a watching world. And I'm uh, reminding us all of the story of Balto today and the symbol that he's become because these things relate to our passage in Acts today and actually to each one of us here too. Now in 1925, those mushers and dogs carried a life-saving serum to people who are in danger. And if that relay team didn't make sacrifices or didn't protect the goods in transit, people would potentially die. But nearly 2,000 years ago, something similar happened with the early Christian church and the apostles and the apostle Paul, but in a much greater way. Back then, it wasn't just one village that was in danger, but the entire world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation was shrouded in sin, and we all had the death sentence hanging over us due to rebellion against God, unholy people accountable to a holy God with no rescue in sight. But in God's grace, he provided the serum to fix the problem. Jesus' death on the cross to forgive us, to die in our place, to take our punishment on himself, so that whoever would turn away from their sin and turn to God in faith in what Jesus had done might have eternal life and fellowship with God. God provided this life-giving serum, what we call the gospel, and entrusted it to a different relay team, not to dogs and mushers, but to the church and to the early apostles. And as we've been making our way through the book of Acts these past few months, we've seen how this life message of, or this life-saving message of Jesus has been like this pebble dropped in the water with this ripple effect, reaching broader and broader areas of impact. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and starting to reach the ends of the earth. And even today, 2,000 years later, we are part of that same relay team, bringing that same life-giving serum to people around us that we work with, we go to school with, and our families. If you are a Christian this morning already, I want to remind you and me that we're all on a very urgent mission. And because we have been entrusted with this life-giving message of the gospel, we need to learn from those messengers that have gone before us. Now, the Apostle Paul is one of those messengers that we can learn from. And it might seem like a funny comparison at first, but I actually think the Apostle Paul is a light, like our good friend Balto here. Um, Balto, don't get too offended here, didn't save the day, by himself at least. He was part of a team. But he caught the spotlight and the attention of the media for the world to consider what does it take in a dog, in a person, to deliver the goods when the chips are down. And I think the Apostle Paul's kind of like that. He didn't personally bring the gospel to everyone in the first century world. He too was part of a team. There are many, many other faithful brothers, sisters who brought the gospel to those around them. But Paul is the one who caught the spotlight, so to speak. His story is captured in scripture so that we can consider what it is that makes someone a faithful messenger. So that's the question we're going to look at as we look at Paul's life. How do you know a faithful messenger when you see one? Or if you want to put it another way, as a follower of Jesus, what traits do you need 
What traits do I need to share the gospel well and effectively when lives are on the line? We're going to look at the life of Paul, and I'm going to have us focus just on two of those traits that he showed in his life and ministry that showed that he was a faithful messenger. So if you've got your Bibles, please pull them on out, and let's open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. As you're flipping over there again, this is our question. How do you know you have a faithful messenger when you see one? Uh, two qualities. I'm going to just tell us the first uh, a thing up front here, the first trait up front so that we can look for it as we listen through here. How do you know you've got a faithful messenger? First thing, a faithful messenger is selfless. Let's read Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. We're going to make it all the way through the whole chapter today, so put on your seatbelts. Verse 1 says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Soapter, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Okay, those are some of the other mushers, so to speak, right? These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Okay, lots of travel details here, cities, that kind of thing. But the first point that I want us to really focus on here is that a faithful messenger is selfless. And it's going to take me a few minutes here to develop this thought here. It starts in this part, but it's actually woven throughout the whole chapter here. So it's a slow build, but I think that you'll see this theme emerge as we look at the whole chapter. Uh, let's just look at that first verse here. It says, when the uproar had ended. What uproar is he talking about? Well, this is what happened uh, last week in chapter 19. Pastor Eric talked about this riot in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And there's a big city, had a big temple of, uh, to a foreign god, Artemis. And um, basically, Paul had been there for multiple years preaching the gospel, and it was having a huge impact there. And the folks there got upset at this movement that Paul was leading, this Christ these Christians. They got upset and made a lot of noise trying to get rid of him. But what I want to point out here as he leaves the city is that this part, departure wasn't done in haste, it wasn't done in fear, but it was actually planned out before the, the, uh, um, the riot even happened. Uh, last chapter, chapter 19, verses 21 and 22, you don't have to turn back there, he basically said before the riot ever happened, hey, the gospel's having an impact, I'm going to leave Ephesus now, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem but before I do, I'm going to go back through Macedonia and Greece and then come back and go down to Jerusalem here. So um, he's, he's not uh, in a panic saying, oh man, this big riot just happened. I better get out of town quick. But it's a decision that he already made prior to that. And know what Paul does after this big riot, all this noise when it's time to move on. Verse one, he calls together the Christians in the city and he encourages them. That's just a simple thing there. But his message is not, oh, woe is me, or can you believe that they blame me for all this trouble that's happening here in Ephesus? But he wanted to encourage them. 
He is a giver, not a taker. His concern is building up these other believers when he goes. And so he leaves the city of Ephesus in Turkey. He heads over to Macedonia in Greece. And uh, verse 2, it says, He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Now, Macedonia and Greece, these are places that Paul had already been to in previous chapters. He had already established churches there. He knew the people well. But the key thing that we need to know here is uh, that it was out of his way. Basically, he starts off here in Turkey. Okay, I'm going to do the map backwards in my mind to make it right for you all. He's here in Ephesus and Turkey. Jerusalem's down this way, basically. But he says, you know what? Before I go there, I'm going to head over here, the other direction, to go visit these believers in uh, Macedonia and Greece. And the question is, why would he change his schedule? Why would he go out of his way, the wrong direction, when he actually wants to go to Jerusalem? And the answer is, like in other places in Acts, he wanted to build up these Christians. And sure enough, that's what he does, right? He wasn't trying to do just what was most convenient for him in his own schedule, but he cared about these other believers and their growth in Christ. He's a giver. He's outwardly focused. He cares about other folks. And that's why he does what he does. And these are the first little tiny taps of the hammer that build this theme of a faithful messenger being selfless. But there's more. Let's continue reading the chapter in verse 7. He's going to leave that area. It says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. How many of you guys would want to be in that meeting? There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight... He left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Okay, so this is a, a short and kind of funny story here, pretty well known uh, in the overall part of Acts. Paul basically makes it back to the city of Troas, which again, it's in Turkey. So he's kind of gone out of the way over here to Greece and Macedonia. He's back near Ephesus or closer to Ephesus, and he's teaching some more believers. This young guy, after many, many hours, falls asleep in the windowsill, falls down dead. Paul raises him from the dead and then goes back to teaching. Um, and this is typically the passage that you go to when you want to harass Pastor Eric when he's preaching too long, right? Um, Eric at BethelChurchAK.org, right? Uh, but glad to reassure you, if you fall asleep during today's sermon, we have kind of a ranch style set up here in the room, so you'll only fall a few feet to maybe bonk your head or something. Nothing big. Now, I'm joking, but do you notice something unusual about this particular passage here? What's unusual about it is how little space and time Luke gives to the telling of it. Uh, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. Someone's raised from the dead. There's this church service. Guy falls out of the window, brings him back to life. That is show-stopping news. And you think that the rest of the time that they were together, they just focus on that but in this case, it's almost like Paul raising this guy from the dead seems to be almost no big deal. He just goes back to teaching. 
And the way that the account is told, we don't get Luke, who's telling the story here, saying something like this. And the young man fell out of the window, and Paul rushed down to him and raised him from the dead. And all the people were sore amazed and said, Oh, Paul, what a great and mighty apostle you are. We are in awe of how totally cool you are, dude. Right? There's none of this focus on Paul or this amazing thing that he did even. He just gets back to business and goes back to teaching here. What you get is this total emphasis on Paul's teaching and instructing the people tirelessly. Verse 7, as we read, said, Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight, making the most of every minute he had with these believers in that city. And then after this guy Eutychus dies and is raised from the dead, Paul says, hey guys, he's alive again. Now, as I was saying, right? Then he goes on and teaches again till daylight. I mean, it's kind of humorous. He just picks up where he left off after they all have a snack. But the point that I'm making here is the same thing. Paul is selfless. He knows he's leaving the next day and he doesn't just say to everyone, hey, you know, it's been great, but uh, we got a long journey tomorrow and I got a pack. Uh, we might want to get some extra rest because it's going to be a lot of travel tomorrow. No, he teaches them straight through midnight. And then even after he raises this young guy from the dead, he doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not mindful of himself, uh, but he gets back to his message because that is what he wants to impart to these people before he leaves because it's not about Paul. The message is more important than the messenger. And Paul knows that well. So let's read on here. Now, in contrast to this very short story about Paul raising this guy from the dead, very short, we, in contrast, get this really long speech from Paul uh, at the end of the chapter where he meets one last time with the church leaders from the city of Ephesus. And this speech by Paul is way more important to the meaning of this particular chapter than that whole incident of him raising the dead was. Well, why would I say that? Uh, the reason why is because of pacing. Pacing is something that means when things are told quickly and briefly in Scripture, typically they're less important. But when you get something that is long and slow and drawn out with a lot of detail, that's the author's way, in this case, Luke. That's his way of saying, pay attention to what's going on here. You need to really take to heart what Paul is saying to these guys. And that's exactly what we have in this particular situation. Paul raising the guy from the dead uh, only took a few verses, six for the whole section, two or three just for the raising of the dead. But his speech to these elders is 20 verses long. So it's Luke's way of saying, hey, this is an important speech. So let's go ahead, if you're following along, and jump down to verse 16. Basically, Paul leaves the, the city where, where Eutychus was raised from the dead. He stops by near Ephesus, the place that he had left at the very beginning of the chapter, and he gives one last message to these church leaders. I'm going to read the whole thing uh, so we can hear how it shows his selflessness as a messenger, and then we'll come back and hit uh, a second trait of a faithful messenger that comes up in this in the speech here. So verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, okay, this is a nearby city, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, okay, here's his speech, the 20-verse speech here. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, 
from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord, the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, that's the end of his speech. Then it says in verse 36, wrapping it up, it says, when Paul had just finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced and kissed him. What grieved them the most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, that's a lot. It's a fire hydrant of scripture there, but we're going to go through it here. Uh, let me just point to you a few verses in Paul's speech here that show this uh, aspect about Paul, that he is a selfless messenger before I pick up on that second trait that makes Paul such a faithful witness. Paul is selfless. Look at how he starts it in verse 19, his speech. He says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. He's saying, hey, day one, I humbled myself. I served and taught you all, even though it wasn't a cakewalk. People were plotting against me, working against me. I was tested and it brought me anguish. But again, dot, dot, dot. He was there for almost three years. He didn't give up. At the very end of his speech, verse 33, he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. He's basically saying here, you guys know I was with you for three years. I wasn't in it for the money. Not only did I not make money, but I spent money, my team spent money so that we could minister to you because we wanted to set an example for you. But I think most importantly, uh, focusing on Paul's selflessness here is verse 22. It's the middle of his speech 
where he says, he's telling these Ephesian elders about his travel plans, and he says, now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Again, I think this is where uh, Paul's selflessness comes to a head. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and uh, it's a little bit of a spicy town for Paul, right? He's walking into the lion's den. He doesn't know specifically what's going to happen to him there, but he knows it's not going to be fun. But that doesn't make him run away or look for another option. Why? It's because the message that Paul has is more important than his own life as a messenger. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I think when he says that, that's something rare. I think that's something admirable, um, rare in our day. This is a man who knows why he is alive, and he's not afraid to face death. And his willingness to lay aside his own future, his own comfort, and his very life make him this epitome of selflessness. I don't know how old Paul was at this point, but he didn't say, hey, you know, I need a vacation. I need to go somewhere else. He says, no, I need to go in the lion's den. That's where God wants me. That's where I'm going to go. As long as the message gets there, I'm good with that. And that selflessness is that first trait that makes Paul a faithful messenger. Now, there's a second trait that comes out in the speech uh, about a faithful messenger, and this is it. A faithful messenger gets the message right. Okay, this is the no-duh moment uh, of the sermon, right? Well, of course, if the messenger doesn't get the message right, they kind of blew it, right? But notice how much of Paul's speech that we just read focuses on reminding these church leaders of the content of what he taught for three years. Verse 20, he says, You know, you know, these are guys that know him well. I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And this really is a summary of his message. It's repentance and faith here, right? Repentance just means to change your mind. Like we're all going our own way, being our own boss, the Lord of our own life, and we have this repentance, this change of mind going, you know, that's not working out so well. I want to go God's way. But the second part of that is, is faith in Jesus Christ. We put our trust, our confidence in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose again from the dead. That's the essence of his message. And even though that's his basic message, he talks about this message in other ways. In verse 24, he refers to it as the good news of God's grace, but it's the same thing. Verse 25, he refers to it as preaching the kingdom, but it's the same thing. Verse 27, he calls it the whole will of God, but it's the same message, repentance and faith in Jesus. And if we're unclear on that or we think, well, I don't know if I agree with that, 
Fortunately, we have the rest of the New Testament. You can read Romans. You can read the other things that Paul has written to see that this is his consistent message. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We have a problem. God has provided the solution. Repentance and faith in Jesus. And getting this message right is super important to Paul. Because in verse 28, he tells these church leaders to watch out for their flocks, to guard them. In context, he's telling them to guard this message of repentance and faith in Jesus because he knows that the purity of the serum is under threat. Verse 28, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now notice here in verse 20, uh, 30, he's not con- he's, he is concerned about those who will come in and distort the truth. He doesn't say, I'm really worried about those who are going to tell you the exact opposite of what I told you. He doesn't say, I'm worried about those who are going to totally reject what I told you. But he says, I'm concerned about those who are going to distort the truth. Take what I gave you and bend it, tweak it, try to co-opt it maybe for their own purposes. And it's still going to look enough like the truth to sucker some people in. But he says, watch out for it because it's a distortion. Close to the truth is so much more dangerous than an outright lie. You can smell an outright lie a mile away but it's when it's close that it's the problem. And that's why Paul is warning these church leaders for three years with tears. He knew lives were on the line. I mean, think about our Balto uh, example from the beginning here. This relay of mushers and all those dogs. I mean, part of those mushers' jobs, those dogs' jobs, job, was to sacrificially get out there on the trail when it was cold and uncomfortable, probably dark, maybe dangerous, But another part of their job was to protect those goods and deliver them intact exactly the way that they had received them. Their job was not to tweak the recipe along the way. And that gets almost comical if you think about that back in 1925. I mean, here's one of these mushers mushing along. Here's my dog sled. Here we go. Mushing my dog sled here. And uh, all of a sudden, this musher, he's taking the serum there. He kind of maybe examined it when he got handed off to him. And he says, you know what? I bet I can make that even better. Uh, and he says, you know what would make the serum better? Chaga. Chaga makes everything better. Okay. If you don't know what chaga is, it's an Alaskan thing. You have to look it up. It's, it's like a fungus, right? <laughs> now, you've got kids dying of diphtheria in Nome. Do you want some musher altering the recipe of the serum along the way? No, thank you. I actually got to know the first serum, too. So thank you. You don't add chaga to the serum, and you don't add chaga to the gospel. And yet, people will try to do it all the time. And this is what it can sound like in our day and age when they try to distort the true gospel. They'll say, well, sure, Jesus died for your sins and all that, but he also died to make you rich and healthy and happy. No, that's chaga in the gospel. Or they'll say, well, sure, Jesus died for your sins, but he also died so that you can work on bringing heaven to earth to make this an ideal paradise and take over. Nope, that's chaga in the gospel. Or they'll say, well, sure, Jesus died for your sins, but shh, 
If you beat people over the head with that kind of negative message of sin and forgiveness, you're going to be out of touch with the next generation and you're going to lose them. So we need to adapt the gospel to fill in the blank with whatever trend it is this week to make the gospel relevant. No, that is chaga in the gospel. When you diminish sin and repentance from sin and Jesus as the solution on the cross for that, you're put in chaga in the gospel. Our sin, our forgiveness of sin is always relevant. And we don't want to distort the gospel because we carry a serious responsibility as Christians because we are carrying this life-giving serum to a world that needs to hear it. Now, a um, little side note here. Paul said something in verse 26 that disturbed me a little bit this week, got, me, got my attention, got me thinking. Struck me as a little bit odd at first. Okay, this is what he said in verse 26. He says, I declare to you today, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. And at first, I thought this whole, I'm innocent of your blood, just seemed really out of place. I mean, he's saying goodbye to close friends that he's known for years. These are, you know, people he's worked with, people he loves and cares for. You can see at the end of the chapter, he's giving this farewell speech, and he throws in there, I'm innocent of your blood, right? Okay, maybe a little paranoid, Paul, right? That's not typically how I say goodbye to people when I go places. Goodbye, my wife. Goodbye, my children. I'm innocent of your blood. See you at dinner, right? It's just not what you do. But get to what he's saying here by throwing this in here. Why is he innocent of their blood? Because verse 27, he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And that actually makes sense. He's saying, I know that when I came to you for these three years, I had a holy, a solemn responsibility to deliver this message of repentance and faith to you. Unpolluted, clear, complete, and without distortion. I gave it to you straight, he says. I didn't hold back. I didn't sugarcoat the hard parts to hear. And because I got my, the message right, my hands are clean. And what you do with the message now is up to you. But I would say this uh, with, a, with a bit of sobriety here. Christians, for you and for me, there is a culpability. There is a guilt, blood on our hands, if we withhold the whole gospel or if we distort it, or if we shrug our shoulders, it's something that's a distortion and go, eh, close enough. Keeping the gospel, the gospel's kind of a big deal. So we gotta make sure that we're delivering this serum intact, complete, and chaga-free. A faithful messenger gets the message right. Uh, let me sum up here for time. Faithful messenger selfless, a faithful messenger gets the message right. When you put those two things together, kind of sounds like this. Faithful messenger puts the message before the man or before the woman. We put the gospel before ourselves, before our comforts, before our preferences. We don't tweak it to make it like we wish it was so that it would sound so much sweeter to our neighbor. We just give it straight. In applications for us, if you were a Christian... I'm imagining you want to be that kind of messenger. But what does it look like? Well, let's consider Paul, uh, the Balto of the early church. In this passage, Paul changed his travel plans, his itinerary, so he could invest in others. He lost sleep, at least that one night, uh, for the sake of the gospel. 
he endured people scheming against him. So much easier, it's just easier to walk away, right? But he didn't. He walked into a dangerous situation for the sake of the gospel. He made sure he got the message right. He didn't hold back part of the message. He didn't hold back the tough parts. And he warned those, warned about those who would come and distort it. Now, our concrete applications might look the same as Paul's or they might look a little bit different. But I think the key here, either way, whether you're looking at growing in selflessness or growing in our dedication to getting the message right, is just to realize the value of this message that we have been entrusted with in Jesus. My brothers, my sisters, myself, I speak to myself, do we know the value of this thing that we carry? It is more potent than a serum and an antitoxin for diphtheria. The message of who Jesus is, what he has done, is this life-giving serum that our world needs. Once we realize that, I think it's easy to grow in the other areas. So that's for us who are already Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're checking things out. Uh, The application is simple. Take the serum. We are all in need of God's rescue plan for us, this message of the gospel. We've all rebelled against God, gone our own way, saying, I want to be my own boss and life. And the world's a mess because of it. So we need to do the same thing that it says in the message here to repent, to change our minds and say, I want to go your way, God. And I'm going to put my trust in what you did, Jesus, on the cross, that you died to pay for my sins, that you rose again from the dead to show that you had conquered death. And I want to follow after you. So if that's you, um, I'm just going to close this out here with a prayer. I'll pray first. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, I'll pray for those who want to do that. Just pray in your own heart to God uh, with me. And then I'll pray for the rest of us too. So if you want to put your trust in Jesus, just say something to God like this. Say, God, I've gone my own way. I've, I've rebelled against you in my thoughts, my hearts, in my heart, and the way things I've done things. But I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to learn from you. I want to come after you. So I turn away from that sin and turn to you. And I put my trust for my standing, my position before you, not in my own resume, not in the things that I've accomplished, not in all the good things I have done or would promise to do, but I put it solely in Jesus Christ that he lived a perfect life and he died in my place. He took the punishment that should have been mine for me and he rose again from the dead. Help me to follow after you today. Lord, and I pray too for the other people who've already done that. For the rest of us here, help us to know this valuable treasure that you've given us so that we could get it to people who need it. In Jesus' name, amen.